This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Everybody, it's overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. What is this show anymore? What is this show anymore? This is what isn't this like the fourth one we've recorded since I had a baby? But everyone still has felt like the first one since yes. I had the baby. And it might be the first one we've recorded where I'm telling you about a book, which I actually got a little like nervous about before we started because i haven't done it in a while well because i just have so much extra perspective and stuff because i'm a dad now like i just have a really ever really deep knowledge of the world that you can't access because you have not experienced the joy that is your son pooping on you yes and getting all your clothes covered in poop this is true i've never experienced that um, yeah. So it's going to be a weird time on this podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. And I have never told, I don't think I've ever you've, told a book to a dad before. <laughs> you've never told a book to a dad. <laughs> I don't know that I'm not in podcast first. form anyway. So thanks for mm-hmm. being here for this momentous occasion. Sure. You like at a party, you've never told a book to anybody who is a dad? I mean, maybe at a party, but it didn't take an hour and I didn't do a bunch of research. And you didn't first. record it. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, so this is a very, this is like baseball hall of fame records in 2019. Like the only way you can yes. do anything first is by being very, very specific the about first it. So time I'm glad to be here for this extremely specific achievement. A, a man named Craig told dad a book on a Thursday. Is it third? It's a Friday. Even better. It is Friday. Hey, I knew that and you didn't. So who's the functioning member of That's society true. now? Idiot. Um, it's not Aristophanes who wrote Lysistrata. It's not Aristophanes because he's dead. <laughs> so He's way can't, dead. Can't be him. Um, so quick pronunciation note, I we have heard that both Lysistrata and Lysistrata is correct from multiple different sources. From multiple so YouTube go with, robot ladies. So. Right. Well, and then you came with one and I came with another one. And sure. you're a drama major. I'm a classics major. That's How me. are they going to get along? Mr. Dance and drama over here. The original odd couple. Um, talking about that. So, yeah, this is a play that I have known about and learned about but never read, never required to read. I didn't skip any homework on this one. I just never got around to it. Yeah, because like I have encountered uh, some of this and some of the other, uh, like Euripides and some of the other like Greek playwrights. Though I think you do more drama generally than these yes. comedies, just yes. because I think more of the dramas exist, right? I don't know that we have eleven of the forty plays that aristophanes wrote or that we know of but apparently like we're going to talk about the difference between old and middle and new comedy in the in the greek theater and there is basically no extant example of middle comedy like with no complete plays survive intact until the modern day which yeah is it's some um, it's some of aristophanes later mixtapes um 
So we're going to do a little section of author research and background, and then I'm going to tell you about this play from 400-ish BCE <laughs> or so. But yeah, what I was going to... I I have read some of this, but I bet that a drama major is more concerned with the, the form as it is currently performed and maybe not so much with like the deep deep roots like you probably do some of it but i how much of your of your dance and drama education was focused on more modern stuff what do you mean what do you mean more modern my education i I went to your education i went to the cloistered hill of Kenyon college where i know where you went we both went there i'm just saying how much time do you spend like learning about where plays came from and how much time did you spend doing stuff that's been done in like the last 50 or 60 years that are still like widely performed and have had a big impact on the, on the like scene as it exists? Um, at a, at a liberal arts college. I did not know this question was going to be so hard. There were only so many opportunities in that setting to like really dive into contemporary theater. So it's for, I think for a lot of the folks who emerge from that program, it's, it's always fun to come out into the world because you're like, well, I didn't even know people were making plays about that because huh. I took a test that ended at 1960. Okay. Um, yeah. So this, I I have a sense of where Aristophanes fits in vis-a-vis Euripides and Sophocles. And what did Aeschylus even do? He just had a, a name that you feel really smart when you know how to say it. Yeah, it's true. It's way too many vowels to be birthed. It's a lot of vowels. Um, but what? Aristophanes, the man himself, son of Philippus, born in 446 BCE, died 386-ish BCE. Um, Andrew, that means he was alive for 420 BCE. Nice. Just so you know. Nice. Um, called- Had they invented cool party cigarettes back in 420 bce I bet they had some form of jazz cigarettes okay cool fifth century bc probably didn't call them jazz cigarettes but no because they hadn't invented jazz yet but maybe true. they called them like middle comedy cigarettes because oh. <laughs> all the people who did middle comedy were just blazed out of their minds all the time um as i said we have 11 of his 40 plays uh he was called the father of comedy or the prince of ancient comedy by a bunch of people. I don't know the difference between those two. Um, a lot of his plays were like satire of famous people. Um, Plato said that his play, The Clouds, was slanderous and may have, you know, helped build the case against Socrates. Um, he loved to write plays against, about this dude named Cleon, who was a demagogue? He hated Cleon. He hated Cleon. Um, and at one point, I think Cleon like brought him before the council and was like, "We should arrest slash kill this guy because he keeps making fun of me." Um, and he kept making fun of him. So there's that. But this is yeah. So so you mentioned the the lampooning or like commenting on public figures, and that yeah. is a like a a very textbook example of what old comedy is. Um, I, when I read old comedy, I thought it was just about 55-year-old male comics complaining about the stuff that you can't joke about these days. But no, in Greece, it was something else. You work, you've been working on that one for a while? I did write it down in my notes. Oh, my God. <laughs> just working on my type five. Um, 
so yeah, old comedy is is pretty rigidly structured. Um, like the chorus is a major element, and that starts to fade away in in middle and new comedy. But it was very focused on on commenting on public figures and and political situations. Um, and it's it's very specific about it. So you've got those individual figures like our our boy Cleon, who yeah. specifically gets roasted in old comedy, middle comedy. Like the chorus starts to fade away and the the subject matter becomes like broader and more generalized. Like instead of being about a person, it might be about like a movement or like a, a just like general stuff that was happening. Um, and then new comedy is more was was more focused on like realistic portrayals of day to day life. And so there is less there is less political stuff, but also in this in new comedy you see the fading of like gross out humor that sort of defines old comedy yeah. and i'm like i just remember people i mean there's like a lot of dick jokes and stuff but also people are just kind of gross sometimes yes, yes. people are Maybe gross we can talk about that a little bit um yeah it's my understanding that new comedy the the person you look to is menander and a lot of that stuff is very comedy of manners so no pooping um and there's <laughs> Definitely, those would be bad. That would be the comedy of bad manners. <laughs> Thank you. Bad manners. Um, and yeah, what we'll see in this one, there isn't too much overt scatological stuff, but there's a lot of genitalia and a lot of just like people all out there. And isn't that yeah. goofy? Um, this is just the Family Guy of its time. Yeah, I made a note to myself that also Aristophanes, the Tim Allen of his day. So there's <laughs> there's some scholarship on Aristophanes about who exactly he was satirizing and who he was satirizing them for. Um, it and especially that is relevant to a play like Lysistrata, where it is about, and we'll get into this in the details a little bit later, it is about women who take control in Greece by going on a sex strike, and they they achieve some modicum of political power. But of course, it's a comedy, so like, is he making fun of them also? Maybe. Um, he is also, his plays would have been performed at the big festivals, many of which were almost the audiences were probably if not exclusively male then you know certainly way majority male and certainly you those are the days huh oh god and certainly <laughs> people who were in power or had money and resources were more likely to attend than not and also your chorus was likely funded by a wealthy choragos which is some sort of upstanding member of society who has the money to do such a thing. So there is a little bit of the reactionary in Aristophanes' humor, um, or at least a guy who doesn't want to be categorized. And that you can, it's, I don't know, it seems like he didn't <laughs> like a lot of the ways that Greece, or specifically Athens, was heading as it declines or reaches this decline during the Peloponnesian War. Yeah, so we can talk about that yeah, a little yeah. bit. And I think in the book section, unless you really want to get into Peloponnesian War stuff not right now. Not just yet. Bit, but. Um, but that you could read him as kind of being a little soured on the democratic experiment that was had been taking place for most of his life because... Uh, it was, you know, leading to a weakening of Athens and, and things, or at least from his point of view. So you might, he while being young, while he was doing most of his writing, 
um, seemed to be a little bit of an old fart. Um, so even when he's writing about old people farting, he is not necessarily uh, making jokes for the you know the everyman from a like advocacy so perspective. Did you, you, you plan that old fart? I didn't actually. I just kind of found I, it's just off the dome. Just off the dome. Um, and his plays, and this one is certainly one where they often. <laughs> uh, I sorry. There are a lot of things you can say about Lucas Prada. <laughs> It's it's certainly one of Aristophanes' plays. They often identify a real like social ill or evil that needs some sort of remedy, but the remedy he comes up with is rather outlandish. Um, Is it intentionally outlandish, like modest proposal? Okay. I think so, but it, it also in a way that does not necessarily like always punch up. It just kinda like punches. Like he's not always Yes, he is making fun of a specific powerful person, but he is not necessarily advocating for the little guy at the same time, which is okay. which is I think a thing we think about in modern comedy a lot is like how can you make sure you're always punching up um and he's just kind of punching the whole time. That's okay, I think. Um anything else that we want to talk about background-wise or do we just kind of want to I do want to get into Peloponnesian Peloponnesian War stuff because it is interesting, yeah, but yeah. I I assume we can bring it up more organically in the book section. So maybe we should just take a break real quick and then come back. Sounds good to me. So, Craig, I've been listening to the ad breaks while I was out. You weren't supposed to listen to those. It just it sounds like you've got this one handled, so I'm just going to sit back and Oh, sure. let you tell the folks at home about the fine people at Quip. Great. Andrew, did you know that the easiest way to ease back into routine is to simplify the morning and evenings with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip? It's got yes. sensitive sonic vibrations that will t- not only help you have an effective clean, but there were there are pulses that tell you when to move around your mouth uh, every thirty the to- seconds. Move the toothbrush around your mouth specifically. Yes, you move the cool Quip toothbrush around your mouth every thirty seconds when it pulses, and that way you don't just brush two teeth real good, but you brush them all until they're clean. A lot of people don't know is you got to brush all those bad boys in there. Yeah, it's weird. Not just the ones that your friends see, but all the ones that you use to eat. Um, And thankfully, brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, um, which is a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and so that you can stay committed to your oral health. Most of us uh, use old, worn-out bristles that are ineffective, so let Quip send you new ones. Um, Andrew, you used a Quip toothbrush, and... Tell me about it. I really enjoy the toothbrush, and I also kind of enjoyed the card that they sent me in my last brush head refill that just said, how many people do you think floss dance when they get their new Quip (laughs) brush heads? So not only will they keep your mouth clean, they will keep your mouth smiling because they tell so many jokes. Oh, that's why I love Quip and why it's perfect (laughs) for getting back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash overdue. Clean your mouth. Smile bright. Sex. 
money. Now that I have your attention, Whoa. let's talk about Lysistrata. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could do that. Um, for the record, I read the uh, edition in like a Penguin Classics edition, which is a translation by Alan Summerstein, um, which is sometime, sometime in the last 20 years, I think. There's also a, a newer translation by Sarah Rudin that people can go look up. Um, but this is the one that I had, so I read this one. It's pretty, it's fine. I found it, <laughs> I found it fun and serviceable. Okay. I found it fun and serviceable. I don't know that I would choose this one if I were going to stage the play, personally. Um, do these get, st- I mean, you probably yeah. don't know off the top of your head, do these get staged still? Yeah, they do. Um, you'll usually run in what I have seen most recently here in Philadelphia. I think there was a full production of it somewhere, but it is also the type of thing that because the sex strike, uh, symbolism is like such a meme at this point, it can be adapted. It can be recast. It can be the basic conflict of this story can be reused, um, and I imagine that much like Shakespeare, the fact that it's so divorced from our context makes it ripe for recontextualization. Yes, and it has been a lot. Sure. There are too many adaptations for us to name on this here podcast, but they're all on Wikipedia if you want to go look them up. Um, <laughs> maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard. Just chip in $5 first to make sure that they don't have to shut it down. Um, so the backdrop of this play is the never-ending war of the Peloponnesian War, which was what, <laughs> <Yep>. Andrew? <laughs> uh, so if you know how Athens and Sparta sort of hate each other in popular culture, like in movies like The 300 that you might have seen. Is it called The 300 or just The 300? The 300. <laughs> Mr. 300. Um, this is this is one of the big ones. Yeah. The other, the other big Athens-Sparta War being the Corinthian War, which happened later. Yeah. Um, so what we know about this primarily comes from the historian Thucydides, who never called it the Peloponnesian War. The um, <laughs> they I, he, people think it would have been called the Attic War, but like very Athens-friendly historians just like studied and wrote about this for so long that it became the Peloponnesian War. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a series of three smaller wars running from 431 to 404 BCE. So this would have been something that, uh, that, uh, Aristophanes would have been dealing with for his entire adult life, pretty much. Um, for a little bit of context, the Roman Republic did exist in this time, but it hadn't expanded beyond Italy. Uh, Rome did not come in and conquer Greece fully until, uh, like the mid 100s in the, in the Punic Wars. Okay. Um, So Athens and the Delian League fought Sparta and the Peloponnesian League. The first of those three little wars ended in what was more or less a truce, like Sparta was was trying to invade over land, but Athens pressed its advantage because it had uh, superior naval power. Um, But in the subsequent Quintu Wars, Athens did badly and their, their naval power slowly faded. Um, so they they uh, suffered this major defeat where most of their fleet was destroyed in 413 BCE. So two years before Lysistrata is performed. So yeah. the yeah. So the the context for that would be this war has been going on for like a hot two decades. Mm-hmm. We're still a few years off from the end of it, but the public's probably you know pretty war fatigued at this point. And if you are unhappy with the way that Athens is handling the war, you have lots of reasons to be that way. Sure. Yes. 
Um, and this the war ends with Athens' surrender in 404 BCE. Uh, Athens did bounce back a little bit in the Corinthian War, but I didn't do a very extensive reading on on that. That's so. fine. That's that's yeah. a great summary. Thank you. Um, and I I did not realize where we were at 413, which is a useful reference point, just because yeah, this play opens up with Lysistrata and her friend Kalanice, uh just complaining about the state of things and how bad this war has gone. And um, Lysistrata has arranged for some sort of meeting with all of the women in Athens. And they haven't shown up yet. They're very late. Um, And Kalaisi says, this is just going to be the great intro into the play, Andrew. Caroline says, tell me, what is this thing that you've called us women together to talk about? Is it a big thing? A very big thing, Lysistrata says. Big and meaty, you mean? Very big and very meaty. Then why on earth aren't they here? That's not what I meant, Lysistrata says. So right from the get-go, we are just up to just our about ears. Just up to our ears and ding-dongs. Up to our ears and ding-dong jokes. Um and so that, that carries throughout the whole play. But anyway, Liz Estrada is uh, telling her plan to Kalanice, and she is saying that um, we're going to end this war. This thing sucks. We're going to unite and save Greece. And she's like, how are you going to do it? We're just women. All we do is sit at home looking pretty and wearing our saffron gowns. And Liz Estrada says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. We're going to use those gowns, we're going to use that makeup, we're going to use our smells, and we're going to end this war. Um, that She didn't say smells, she said sense. Um, and through some sort of like whisper network, I think Liz Estrada's name means liquidator of armies. I don't want to miss that, which is kind of a cool... Army disbander Army dis- is what I've got. I like liquidator, army liquidator, like lumber liquidators. Come on down to the army liquidators. <laughs> Every army must go. Close out prices on like new armies. Yes, she has used some sort of private Facebook group to organize a meeting with all the women. There's a, there's a little bit of a an unexplained resourcefulness to Liz Estrada that just carries throughout the piece. She just has gotten all these people together. We don't see the scenes where she does it. It's just kind of taken as a fact. Um, But she gets all the women together and she's like, listen, y'all, we are going to withhold uh, sex and end this war. Um, Now there is a representative from Sparta there named Lapido. Uh, again, not sure how they contacted her. Um, and there's also a weird scene where Lampito comes in and she like immediately starts jumping and touching her butt with her feet to like prove how fit she is. And they're like, uh-huh. and everyone's like, wow, you're real fit. And look yeah, at I think your. That's part of the presidential fitness test. <laughs> and they're like, look at your boobs and stuff. And it's, it's this moment where. I don't know. It, does Aristophanes think it's funny for a bunch of women to just comment on each other's breasts and butts? Like, I think he does think it's funny. Does he think this is just what women do that, all yes. the time when they're alone without men? Also a possibility. Before that, they invented naked pillow fights, they had they just did the, <laughs> the, the butt, butt jump. foot touch. Yeah, I think I first did one of those in like third or fourth grade. I was pretty impressed with myself. Uh, when you kick were yourself in the butt, were... <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Would these well, have uh, roles have been played primarily by men? Do you know off I the top of your head? I believe they probably would have. Um, okay, so and you're they, not even like. It's interesting that the role was sort of written to encourage bouncing because <laughs> maybe he would have been made up or, or costumed in a way that would evoke bouncing. I don't know. Well, and you're also wearing masks and costumes and things. So there's probably like you've got, you know, fruit, whatever Mediterranean fruit they had in like costume bras, I'm sure, or something. Yeah. That's how Greek apples. That's a thing. Is that a thing? Sure. Why not? Jazz apples. Um, <laughs> so she is making this argument to these women and being like, hey, your men are never around. They're all at war. Don't you miss them? And all of them are like, yeah, we do miss sex. That is true. It, it, it would be great to have some sex. And you're telling us to give it up? And she's like, yes, we have to. Um, they, <laughs> they offer... A few like, what if, um, what if the men don't care? What if the men, uh, try and take it by force? And there's this like, the the translator makes a good note in his preface where he's like, this play really only works if you just kind of put out of your head that non consensual sex is a thing. Like, yes, it really the the only line that we really get about it is Marine, who we meet a couple times. She has already uh, dismissed Lizestrada's suggestion that you could like pleasure yourself on your own. Um, and she's like, what if they take us and drag us in the bedroom by force? Lizestrada says, cling to the door. She says, and if they beat us, what then? And Lizestrada says, just make yourself frigid. There's no pleasure in it if they have to use force. Which is not, a, again, play written by a man, performed for a bunch of men by a bunch of men. Comedy about women. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, I guess. Yeah, is, is this the point where you'd want to talk about sex strikes in general, or do you want to do that later? We could talk about sex strikes. What other stuff you got it's about sex strikes? No, it's just it, it was they were in the media recently because of the Alyssa Milano thing where she yes. was protesting. She was suggesting that people protest restrictive abortion laws sure. by going on a sex strike. Okay. And that that resulted in a in the typical, you know, flurry of think pieces and counter think pieces. Um, so I found one in QZ that was about actually sex strikes have a pretty good track record of of working. Okay, it good. Up a um, a seventeenth uh, century uh, example where uh, Iroquois women uh, like ended a war by going on a sex strike. There were um, civil wars and like unrest and violence and stuff that, that were. Uh, that word solved allegedly in 2003 and, and later in the 2000s in um, Liberia and Colombia and Kenya and the Philippines, like all the stuff attributed to sex strikes. And then I found a piece uh, in iNews by Kate Lister that's really good that where she she makes the point that, yes, there is a correlation, but to say that these movements succeeded just because of sex strikes, like it lacks important context. And it also like to the, to the extent that sex strikes are successful, it's because they bring more attention and like raise awareness of a cause. Uh, so she 
says, for example, in the in the Iroquois example that I think Milano, Alyssa Milano cited too okay. as a, as an example of one that was successful. But she says, quote, the she says the women also, quote, refused to grow crops, make clothes, or supply men with food. So it was a more like wide ranging strike from all the things that like women were expected to do in that society. And then in the like in the Liberian example, the sex strike sort of capped this multi year campaign of like awareness and coalition building and just like real grassroots activism uh, by the Liberian women's movement. And then, you know, the sex strike happens and then, and then the civil war ends shortly after that. But, but it's not, it's not because women withheld sex from people. It's because they were successful activists and using the sex strike to draw attention to things was part of why that movement was successful. Um, she says it is important to recognize these strikes were successful publicity tactics rather than genuine instigators of change. What's more, sex boycotts rarely occur in isolation. They are part of wider acts of political protest and often overshadow years of resistance and hard work. Sex strikes may be effective in grabbing headlines, but they risk reducing women's social activism and political power to sexual bartering. So uh, we'll link that, I think, either on our like on our social feeds or in the show notes or, or something. This was a really good piece, but uh, no, I so yeah. that actually gets to the next thing in the play that I was honestly the most surprised about, having only heard like, oh, it's that comedy by Aristophanes who also wrote the Frogs and the Birds, and it's the one about the sex strike. So. Lampedo. That's <laughs> what the Seinfeld episode, no, the Friends episode would be called. The one about the, one the, about sex, the sex strike. strike. Um, Lampedo, who's the Spartan woman, is like, hey, is this going to work though? Like, how do we actually convince them? Like, what if they just go off and have sex with other people? Or, like, how do we actually convince them they have this big amount of money that they can just spend on war, which is a recurring theme of the play? And Liz Estrada is like, don't think we haven't thought about that. We're going to occupy the Acropolis. Like, I'm talking to you all about not having sex, and all the old women who don't have sex anymore, they are seizing the Acropolis as we speak. <laughs> so the, the like, direct action part of this play was not a thing I knew about coming in at all and was really intrigued by and just impressed by as, as part of the effort. Um, and I'm glad that that kind of matches up with what sex boycotts have done throughout history. That's kind of interesting. Um, so after they are convinced to go forward with it, they take this oath where they like gather around a wine bowl and Liz Estrada makes them say a bunch. It's a really long oath about like not allowing their lover or husband to approach me in a state of erection, um, live at home in unsullied chastity, not inflame my husband's ardor, uh, I will not raise my slippers to the ceiling. Uh, there's one line. I will Just not. All the set, all the sexiest stuff. I will not adopt the lioness on a cheese grater position. Now, Andrew, this is uh, a line that has sparked much scholarship and debate <laughs> because people are not exactly sure what Aristophanes meant when he said lioness on a cheese grater. I think you, you would have to get a bunch of people in a room and just like whiteboard this thing out from yes. start to finish. Like starting with whatever a cheese grater would have looked like <laughs> in 400 BCE. Yeah, because I went on Wikipedia. I was like, let me just look up cheese graters. And it's like invented in 
18th century France. And I'm like, well, that's not true. That doesn't work. Um, Callie Busman wrote a piece for The Cut called The Lioness and the Cheese Grater, History's Most Mysterious Sex Position. (laughs) (laughs) And it basically is like, well, maybe it was like you would have a knife or something that you would cut cheese with. And on the handle, there would be ivory lions like crouched down. Um, And so maybe it's like a variation on kind of a missionary, not a missionary position. I don't know what exactly it is because no one really knows what the lions are doing. Do you think it was a thing that Aristophanes was doing to like make everybody laugh like they got it? (laughs) But then when he, but then when he asks, like, "Oh, you think that's funny? Why is that funny? Could you just..." And then you, your idiocy is exposed. Everybody's been that person at a party where you like laugh at a reference that you don't understand because everyone else thinks it's funny. That's pretty and you good. Be included. Do you think it's that? I think it's probably that. I think it might be that because we don't quite know. Like this cut piece goes into like maybe cheese graters were just like pieces of wood with basically knives sticking out of them and like. Would a lion just like rub up against that? Like we don't know even what the cheese graters would do or how lions would interact with one. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Um, so they take the oath, they swear to no more sex, um, and they go into the Acropolis. It's a it's a hooray moment. Um and Lempido is like, Okay, I'm gonna go tell all the Spartan women that this is happening and they're gonna sign on and it's gonna be great. And then we get the first of our two choruses. Um, And this is a thing I was not prepared for either. Because usually there's just like one chorus in a play. And it represents something or someone. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it represents town people. Some in, I think, in uh, the Bacchae, it represents the followers of Dionysus or Bacchus. Um, In this, we get two split choruses. Or I don't think you would ever say chori, but have fun with words, I guess. Um, there's one group that's old men and one group that's old women. And the men are like marching up to the Acropolis and they're like, well, a bunch of old women took it over. So we're going to burn down the door if we have to. And they're like carrying these big buckets of burning coals. Um, and then the old women come out and they have a bunch of pitchers of water and they kind of just spend a coral ode, like yelling at each other. And then get into a fight where a bunch of women douse the men with water. Um, and I suppose that's like your slapstick humor for, for the first part of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I just want you to know that for the last like five minutes, I've been trying to think of a way to make a joke about old women going to the Acropolis and like Yanni performing at the Acropolis. Like, yeah. Oh, the last time there were this many old women oh at the Acropolis, Yanni was there. <laughs> Now, it's like 75% of the way to a joke, and I just want everybody at home to have the raw materials that they can great. use to build their own jokes. My joke that I'm taking from that material is I'm going to start doing graffiti that all just says Yanni was here. Yeah. Or if I write Yanni was there on a wall, that's going to be really confusing to people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the men lose and are, are thoroughly soaked and sad about it. The town magistrate, Athens magistrate, shows up. Um, with a bunch of archers who I guess are cops. Um, And he complains that the women are out of control. 
um, then complains that the men are not controlling their wives. We get some more sex puns like, man, what take a, take the shoemaker, a great strapping young fellow with a great strapping organ. And he's actually talking about something that he uses to make shoes, but of course he's talking about penises. Um, and the magistrate has come to the Acropolis to get more silver so that he can buy oars for war boats or something. And the women won't let him in. And he's like, hey, coppers, go get him. And they kick the crap out of the cops. A uh, bunch of old women beat up all the cop men. And then Liz Estrada comes out. And this is where we get like the moral debate of the comedy, except it's pretty one-sided in Liz Estrada's, uh, in, in, on her side. And she kind of talks to the magistrate about how women are not included in things. She complains about how men stir up political strife to make money off the war. Um which I think has been mentioned in other Aristophanes pieces that uh, he's written a couple peace plays. I think this is the third of his peace plays. Uh, one of them is just called Peace. Uh, and he seems to not like people who are like profiting from conflict. Um, yeah, that makes sense. He, That's a, There's a through line to the modern day there. Yes. Um, and while Liz Estrada is... Uh, arguing with the magistrate, she's also having the women with her dress him up as a woman, and then is like, "Well, if if you know if you're here to make war, then war is woman's business now." Um, and she makes this argument on how women can solve international strife by making like a really messy metaphor about dealing with tangled wool and like pulling the strands apart. And then knitting the citizenry together into a fleece that needs cleaning. And it's kind of messy. And this is the part where, again, I'm reminded, like, I don't know if Aristophanes is making fun of the women or empowering them. Like, Liz Estrada sure. is never the butt of a s explicit joke. Um, she doesn't get, like... You know, nobody beats her up and nobody like mocks her openly in a way that doesn't seem very, you know, overtly impotent or anything like that. Um, she always has power in the play, but it's moments like this where I'm like, okay, I, this metaphor almost works, but it doesn't feel like Aristophanes believes it. And it doesn't feel like he is actually advocating for women to have a greater role in society. Well, I mean, do, do you get the impression at all that he's, his, his thought process is, this war has been going on for so long that this is this is the absurdity. Like nothing else has yes. ended it. We've had we've had a couple of different truces sort of shattered. Yep. This is the sort of absurdity that we have to resort to now as like women in civic society. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think that's part of where the you know, we don't we can't know his intent, obviously, but looking back on when it was performed and for whom and by whom. Yeah. I bet that that's part of it, which is like, uh, I imagine, you know, him being like, well, we're reduced to this. Women are in charge now. Um, and there's even a, a moment too, where like some of the men we meet a little bit later, don't even believe that the women are capable of doing this. They think the Spartans must have spurred them to it to like weaken Athens. Um, which in and of itself is an indictment of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was struck by some language that Liz Estrada has about the exclusion of women from a, a whole bunch of decision-making and, and things like that in society. But she also says, 
Um, we're in the prime of our lives, and how can we enjoy it with our husbands always away on campaign and us left at home like widows? And quite apart from us married women, what about the unmarried ones who are slowly turning into old maids? And the magistrate says, don't men grow old too? And she says, but it's not the same thing, is it? A man comes home, he may be old and gray, but he can get himself a young wife in no time. But a woman's not in bloom for long, and if she isn't taken quickly, she won't be taken at all. And before long, she's left sitting at home, hoping to see some omen for telling a happier future. Uh, And I was just kind of struck by 2,500 years remove of the the articulation of the gender disparity and like how we perceive age and what is who is gets to be attractive and who gets to seek a mate and well, things apparently, like that. Apparently like men be like this, women be like this comedy <laughs> is also there. back like 2,500 <laughs> years. But yes, that certainly is there, but it is also like, it's to me, I don't know, maybe it's just my brain primed from like, this is an entertainment and this is a play and thinking about like women's careers and entertainment and why, you know, men hit 30 and then they just get to be hired forever. And like once women reach a certain age or like, can we just, are we, can we put them in a romantic role? Right, how there, how there are like a total of three women above the age of 50 who can consistently be employed in Hollywood. Cause that's just like where the yeah roles are. And I think that is, that is gradually getting better. Just like, roles for for people of color and and other sort of underrepresented groups are are getting better but yeah for a long time it's that's that's just how it's been and then you get the middle step where it's like an ensemble comedy a bunch about older women all pursuing sex and love and isn't that kooky and like it is kooky i mean (laughs) that's just the golden girls i've been kind of on a golden girls kick lately not quite sure why how or why it happened um but sometimes it's on in our house, and I do love the Golden Girls. Anyway, <laughs> um, so after the after she kind of dresses down the magistrate verbally, uh, they dress him up as a corpse and like roll him off stage. Um, okay. I don't. It's kind of I don't know. A reverse I, weekend at Bernie. Yeah, sort of. Um, we get another choral ode of argument um, where the men, as I said, are, are assuming the Spartans are behind this. The men and the women are, like, taking their clothes off as they're arguing. I think it starts because the men are all soaked from being getting water poured on them. Um, but it leads to some stuff later. Um, Liz Estrada is having trouble keeping the cohort of women together. They're all, like, they want sex. They're chickening out. One tries to say that she's pregnant and, like, run away. And Liz Estrada's like, you were not pregnant yesterday. Uh, pull that shield out from under your shirt, please. <laughs> um, and she has to convince them to stay. She she ha- she pulls out like uh, a letter from some oracle that tells them that like Zeus is smiling on their enterprise again. Like Liz Estrada as this ultimately resourced uh, protagonist that we never get an explanation of. And then we get a, a really good blue ball scene, Andrew. I love love, love me one of those where. Canisius, I think is his name, who is the husband of Marine, he wanders on stage with just the biggest boner. And his servant is carrying Marine's baby. And he is just, where is my wife? I have this boner. I can't eat because my boner is too big. I am in so much pain. And Liz Estrada is like, hey, Marine, can you just like go torture him a little bit and really like stick it to him? 
so she goes down out of the Acropolis, Acropolis, whatever it is, and she's like, "Oh yeah, my baby. I'm, I'm, it's great to see my baby." And he's like, "But what about me and my boner? I would like to perform quote the secret rites of Aphrodite, which don't seem very secret in Athens." <laughs> seems like everyone knows the secret here yeah a little bit yeah um and she gives it's just like three pages of her being like okay well um did you bring a bed and he's like no i didn't bring a okay we could go get a bed and she's like well do we have a clean blanket can we put a blanket on the bed? And he's like, well, I don't have a blank, my boner. And she's like, but like pillows? <laughs> what about, I need to like clean my hair first. Um, and she does this for like two pages. It's so funny. Uh, <laughs> and he can't stand it. And then she like runs away and is like, nope, I'm not, we're not going to do it. Um, and she's like, don't forget to vote for peace. And like runs back into the Acropolis and he says, she's gone. She's done and diddled me. Just when I was all ripe and peeled for her, she ran away. That's a, not a appealing way to talk about sex. Nope, not at all. Um, we get some more coral odes. And then the Spartans show up. Uh, Spartan guy shows up. He's got a huge erection. Of course like, he does. The, the world of this play is one in which if you have not had sex, I suppose, in the last day or two then you become like an eighth grader with <laughs> yeah just like you got no control over that thing i was reading there is a kind of confusing time jump after the first occupation of the acropolis acropolis mm, i can't do that word uh, acropolis acropolis excuse me um where the Yanni would be so ashamed the footnotes seem to make it to make it seem like there are like six or seven days pass but that feels wrong or at least very unclear. Um, but it's, it's clear this has been going on at least for a while in the lives of these characters. Um, so the Spartan dude wanders on with an erection. The magistrate wanders on with another erection. Like, haha, you too, eh? We should really, <laughs> we should really take care of this, huh? Um, and then the two choruses, uh, like, merge? So the men are so sad about all of this and kind of angry at the women and vice versa. And the leader of the women's chorus kind of accepts a small apology from the man. Um, and she's like, oh, you know, it's okay. Uh, really sorry that this went the way that it has. You know, you've got a bug in your eye. And she pulls a bug out of his eye, Andrew. Why does she do that? Because it was in there, and he's like, oh, man, that was rough. Thanks for pulling that out. And then they kiss. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> and then both of the choruses just start kissing and dancing together, and they join into one single chorus, and they are now the chorus of the play. And um, they're at peace. And they're at peace. So then um, we get formal peace talks where the boner Spartans and the boner Athenians are on stage and Liz Estrada comes out of the Acropolis, Acropolis, excuse me, and brings with her a gorgeous naked woman named Reconciliation. Okay. I don't know what to make of this. It's really... <laughs> I don't think you can make anything of it. 
Um, I think just admit that it happened and move on with your life. Yes. Don't be rough or brusque. Handle them very gently. She's talking to reconciliation, not in the brutal way our men folk used to do, but in the friendly, intimate way that a woman does. If he won't give you his hand, take him by the tool. And so the they get introduced to this sex goddess, which I wonder is maybe Aphrodite in disguise. I'm not sure. It's unexplained. Um, and they hash out a peace deal basically on her body. Um, so the Spartan is like, well, if you'll give us back this round hill pointing at her butt, and uh-huh. then they like map parts of her body to actual territory that they are, you know, like these prickly bushes here and the Malian Gulf behind them and the long legs, I mean the long walls of Megara. Uh, it's hilarious. It's I'm dying. so funny to do it. Uh, and then they, you know, they resolve their differences. They're, they're going to go talk to it, the rest of their allies. And Liz Estrada is like, great. We can all have sex again. You solved Yay. it. You solved the war. Great job, everyone. Um, and then they dance a bunch and sing praises to the gods. They did it. I guess. Hooray. It's a weird play. I don't. <laughs> it sounds like a weird one. <laughs> I, I, so there's some things that are lost in reading it as a book are like, you don't have access to setting any of the choral odes to music, which as written, I don't know that I would set any of the like text to music, but the, uh, I do like they do work in there like the as as odes and I imagine if there's like movement and music playing like maybe that would kind of spice that up. Okay. Um also sure. I don't know what slapstick comedy was in 400 BCE. I don't know if you're allowed to hit people with a pie, if you're really allowed to dump water on them or not or if it's just supposed to be gestural. I mean, I think you're probably slapping a stick like literally yeah there is a literal well i mean the slapstick came from uh commedia dell'arte in italy several hundred Mm -hmm. years later but okay um yeah and again i wonder how they did the dongs is really what i want to (laughs) know that's the real that's the real question here like how they how they make that how they make that small screen magic work? Because these guys are beset, you know. They are just. I, mean, I don't know if it'd be a vegetable or like what the state of like prosthetic things was. <laughs> yeah, if you they do just it with a bunch some, of like, just like a actual sausage or something, do it with a bunch of zooks, you know. Yeah, zucchinis. Um, that could work. I guess. Yeah. I was, it's comedic that it ends so quickly and easily. And I think that plays into what you were saying earlier about Aristophanes being like, well, things are so bad that it might as well get resolved this way. Like, we haven't figured out a way to do it. And, sure. I, you know, I'm going to be you know, the SNL skip master and say like, what if the only way to do it was no sex? Wouldn't that be funny? Um, and I think that, you know, the, the symbolism of the sex strike is like why it has stuck around. And I think 
this play maybe not as much as what I've read about some of his others, but in general, we value Aristophanes' work for like also a window into what was worth satirizing, what was worth complaining about, what were people feeling. There's it's interesting that we get the choruses of older men and women rather than it being the chorus of like the the women withholding sex, you know? Yeah, like I'm wondering with the Cleon thing though, like how much of these plays is him reflecting what people would have been upset about, like back at them, and how oh, much sure. is him like trying to make people as upset as he is about some specific <laughs> grudge? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, it's it from the research I could do, he was not an overtly political person like he was not involved in politics directly um and chose this instead so yeah he might i don't know yeah this, is he reflecting what he thinks other people find funny he did win a bunch of those prizes though some of his plays that he thought were good he did not win awards for um <laughs> listen we all it, it's hard to judge your own work it really is uh but yeah that's anyway thanks for listening to our podcast <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's been updated a bunch. Um I again I was very surprised by the like actual seizing of the Acropolis. I had somehow missed that detail from the whole setup um in any sort of like osmosis learning about the play. Because that that sure. takes it from it takes it a little bit further than just oh the wacky sex politics of four hundred BCE. Um, and says like, oh no, we also s- seized the war bank and said, also, we will not have sex with you. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the, that's it. That's the play. I feel like with the text itself being shorter, it gave us more time to dive into some side stuff, which I appreciate. Yes. It's not after a very the, long After play. the, um, Amber Spyglass episode where I'd frankly struggled to explain what the book even was about. <laughs> That'll happen. Um, It'll happen. Just sometimes it, sometimes you want a little bit more room to breathe is all I'm saying. That's fair. And I'll just remind folks, this was the translation by Alan Summerstein. Um, he talks a little bit about, he has done various translations of this play and, at, and like updates of them. This one took out any sort of scene breaks because those were artificial and he had put them in on his own. Um, Also, there are stage directions, but he's like, there were no stage directions in the original texts that we have. So, like, I put them in based on what is in the dialogue. Um, So keep that in mind if you go read other versions. Again, I might ask folks to seek out the Sarah Rudin translation and let me know what they think. Um, That's Liz Estrada, I think. If you, the listener, organize some sort of sex strike or know anything about ancient Greek uh, penis props, you can email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up online at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com. It's an internet website about our podcast. (laughs) 
up there we have links to Apple Podcasts and our Google Play page and our RSS feed. You can also find us in Spotify and Stitcher and a few other places. Uh, subscribe to the show. Get new episodes when they come out. Usually that's Monday, but every month we have a bonus episode that releases toward the end of the month. Uh, this month, September, that is going to be our latest episode of Hellboys, which I think gets us to the end of the Inferno. Yes, that is correct. Um. Yeah, I don't know. That's the main thing. We also have a new listener page up there with episodes that we like that you can show people to if you're trying to get them into the show. And we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Kick us a few bucks and you get some stuff and we get some stuff, namely money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, an encouragement. Yeah, an encouragement. Uh, Thanks for taking a trip to ancient Greece with me, Andrew. Yeah, no problem. Um. So at this point, I think our September schedule will be up on the website. Yeah. And we're going to map out October, our, what, sixth annual Spooktober? Something like that. At some point. Yep. Pretty soon, sixth or seventh. I don't know. We'll figure it out. One of you guys probably knows better than I do <laughs> at this point. Anyway, until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.